plan for your life? Do you know where you want to go? Are you looking to be happier, healthier, and wealthier while having more fun every day? Meet our empowerment architect and goddess gardener, Cynthia Bryan, as she engages in energetic exchanges with success experts, bringing you research, innovations, strategies, and techniques to strengthen your life, business, and personal spaces. Be inspired, motivated, encouraged, and empowered. Lend us your ears right here on Star Style. Be the star you are. The party starts now. Well, we are here and we are continuing our Wednesdays with writers. Hello, Power Partners. It's Cynthia Bryan and this is Star Style. Be the star you are. We're glad you are joining us. Coming up in uh, segment two, we're going to be discussing... The Last Days of Sylvia Plath with author Carl Rawlison. And we might get a little bit to the life of William Faulkner, which is going to be um, interesting as well. And in our third segment, Rob Swigert has the story of the sedentary divide, the most significant event in human history with his book, Mixed Harvest. The miracle moment for today is brought to you by Be The Star You Are. Go to bethestarur.org. It's Anne Rand. Throughout the centuries, there were men who took first steps down new robes, armed with nothing but their own vision. Kind of sounds like what we're going through right now. Well, Claude Monet also said, my garden is my most beautiful work of art. And I have a vase filled with uh, cascading jasmine right on my nightstand. It just inches away from my bed so that I can smell its heady perfume every night. I mean, and not only is it beautiful, but it's kind of my sentinel because uh, I have been reading how you lose your sense of smell if you get this COVID-19. Well, I'm in good shape. I mean, we're going on week 11, I think, uh, or next week is week 11. I think we're in the middle of week 10. Anyway, um, so I don't want to lose taste or smell, and I appreciate the fact that I can smell the roses as well as all the marvelous fragrances that are breezing through my garden. And I've always been filled with gratitude for the simple things in life, but now more than ever, I am cultivating artful gratefulness with increased urgency, and I'm really thankful for a lush landscape and to have some place to be outside. I live in what I call my private botanical garden, where every day I am greeted by surprising sprouts and sounds and sights. And uh, I have to tell you, you know, I haven't worn any makeup <laughs> in all these all these months. I get to wear my daily wardrobe of my grubby garden garb, my tool apron, my hat, sunglasses, sunscreen, and boots. I love it. I mean, I have splinters and scratches and bites and I've had itchy poison oak. Those are definitely a blight to my body, yet I'm joyful to spend my days weeding and seeding and feeding as I witness the magnificent unfolding in this labyrinth of blossoms. I have my roses. They're now on their second flush of blooms. They're entwined in orchards. I have mustard that is growing 15 feet into the trees. And most people would say, well, it's wild mustard. You should probably cut it. It's on the hillside, but it's so beautiful. And I've actually never seen it this tall before. So I'm just letting it go. And I'm cutting the, the uh, blossoms and putting them in my salad. Clematis um, bowers are on trellises and the clematis is this deep purple uh, Jacamamie, it's really, really pretty. And I have a mosaic of colorful floral layers. They're dazzling on the hillside. And a parterre of bearded iris, corn flags, daylilies, and roses hemmed by clipped boxwood. I, there's butterflies that are flitting from the flowers to flowers, bees humming in the citrus. I mean, nature is truly a living painting. I was uh, pulling out some of the, the dead fronds of daffodils. And as I pulled them out, there was a snake co coiled underneath, just a garden snake. So I'm only afraid of rattlers because those are the only ones that really bother us in this neck of the wood. And I'm glad to have snakes in the garden because they get rats and gophers and moles and voles and other garden pests. But I do think my garden is my most spectacular artwork. I mean, some of it's really messy and wild and other parts are more formal and civilized. Uh, my camellias are now waning, but my fluorescent pink rhododendrons are taking center stage. Uh, I have azaleas in containers, and those are really doing well because they're kind of on a continuous blooming cycle. Also, a variety of trees, both deciduous and evergreen, few fruiting and flowering. Right now, my 
loquats are ripe. And of course, I've got a lot of citrus ripe. Plums are starting to ripen. And this morning, I was watching the birds steal my cherries. So I don't think I'm going to get cherries ripened this year. So in any spare time, I've been pruning and thinning and cutting the dead wood in anticipation of fire season. My goal during this coronavirus crisis has been to keep our immune system strong by eating as many fresh vegetables, herbs, fruits from my garden as possible. And right now, the artichokes are being harvested. And they are so good because I'm getting them young enough that they don't have any thistles in them. So it's all heart. So you can eat the entire artichoke. So if you if you have room to grow an artichoke, you will really enjoy having your homegrown artichoke. My citrus crop has been supplying my family and my friends with daily doses of vitamin C. I just gave a huge box of lemon, limes, and tangelos to... Um, to a, a worker that was working in the neighborhood because I was like, stay safe and, you know, have a lot of vitamin C. And then after I delivered some lemon limes to my neighbor, she offered me a goji berry plant. And I am so excited to grow it as a living fence. I've planted it. It's also called the matrimony vine. And I don't know if you know anything about goji berries, but they can be pruned and shaped to keep them small so that the red fruit will ripen from July to October and can be easily harvested, or you can let them grow into trees. It'll get to be about 15 feet. I'm not going to let that happen. The berries contain more vitamin C than oranges, more potassium than a banana, more iron than a steak. And in addition, I learned that goji berries contain a high concentrate of vitamins B1, B2, B6, C, E, and 18 different amino acids and zinc. So I am so thankful to grow this new specimen that's going to enhance our health. What I want to end with is that gardening is not a hobby. I think it's an essential part of creative being. Gardening is a survival skill. It's an art form. It's very gratifying to sow a seed, water, fertilize, prune, nurture that tiny seed to full bloom. And no matter how, whole, how small a home is, we can always grow herbs in a pot or on a windowsill or fill containers with vegetables and flowers, display them on a balcony or a porch. And with a garden, we bring beauty into our lives. And in, especially in troubling times, beauty is critical to grow our hopes and our dreams. And this lockdown has sparked an increased appreciation for the solitude and splendor of gardening. So let your garden be your most attractive work of art. Plant a painter's palette of exquisite color. A garden is a refuge, a sanctuary. It's a quiet, safe place. Propagate positive possibilities and cultivate artful gratitude. And of course, we want you to stay healthy, stay safe, stay home, and stay grateful. So we'll be back in just a bit, and we're going to be interviewing the author of The Last Days of Sylvia Plath, Carly Rawlinson. Don't go away. You're listening to Cynthia Bryan coming to you live on the Voice America Network. Be the star you are. The star you are. Be the star. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. Are you seeking a Dynamo speaker for your meeting, conference, or organization? Internationally recognized keynote speaker and New York Times bestselling author and lifestyle coach, Cynthia Bryan, will bring her energetic expertise, passionate professionalism, and ebullient personality to your event. Hailed as an expert in lifestyle, women's issues, self-help, personal balance, leadership, media, gardening, and interior design topics, Cynthia Bryan is a popular empowerment keynote speaker around the world. Lecturing to audiences of 100 to 5,000. For rates and bookings, call 925-377-STAR. 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 And visit www.cynthiabryan.com. When you want the best, book Cynthia Bryan. www.cynthiabryan.com. This business of show business is calling out to me. Get started acting or modeling with a consultation from media coach extraordinaire Cynthia Bryan, who has guided entertainment careers for over two decades. Call 925-377-STAR or visit www.cynthiabryan.com. Pick up a copy of her award-winning book, The Business of Show Business, and start living your dreams today. Call 925-377-STAR. 925-377-STAR. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. It's power time on Star Style. Be the star you are with your passion, purpose, and possibility producer, Cynthia Bryan. Now, back to the power party. This business of show. Well, the party begins now when we have our Wednesdays with writers. Welcome back. I'm Cynthia Bryan. You're listening live to Star Style, Be the Star You Are on the Voice America Network. This is the Empowerment Channel. Well, as I uh, introduced in the first segment, our first guest today is Carl Rollison. He is the author of 14 biographies for both adults and, um, and for children. And his subjects have ranged from Picasso to Emily Dickinson. But today, we're going to be focusing on the last days of Sylvia Plath and his other new book, The Life of William Faulkner. Welcome, Carl, to Star Style. Be the star you are. Well, thank you, Cynthia. I'm I'm glad to be with you and to be considered a star. You are a star. My gosh, 14. (laughs) That's a lot. You have really been a very, very busy man. Well, I want to start off with one thing, because you are a star, truly. I was really intrigued when I read uh, in your book that age 15, you went to England as a Shakespearean actor. And uh, being an actor myself, I love talking with actors. How did that experience form your interest, perhaps, in the life of Sylvia Plath or some of the other, maybe the biographies that you've written? Well, I think what it, what it is really is what I was interested in as an actor is, is of course, doing roles. And in order to do, do any character part, any role at all, you've got to put yourself in somebody else's place. You have to have this kind of empathy and a kind of sense of who this person I... was, how they moved, how they behaved what kind of experiences shaped their lives. And I certainly didn't know at the age of 15 that I would use all this to become a biographer. But actually, the more I thought about it as I got into my 20s and early 30s and was doing a lot of teaching, uh, I realized, and I had this interest in history, uh, but I I realized I could put really all of this life experience uh, into biography. And so that's, that's really how it started. And I'm sure, you know, I mean, I feel for me as well as a writer, I feel that all of my acting training and my years as an actor have have really formed how I look at writing and history and people, just as you said. So I think that it really was, it's a part of the creative arts, right? So it's very helpful. Before we get into Sylvia Plath, I have one other thing I have to just just um, go with you as an actor is you talked about James Mason. And I am a, I just love James Mason. I think he's one of the finest actors, just such a true gentleman. And I had the privilege of working with him on um, wow. the movie Heaven Can Wait. And oh, so yeah. just give me your little background on James Mason, because I thought I thought the way you approached it was so interesting. Yeah, I was, I was, you know, uh, 15 years old. I was in England. I had uh, already at that point, uh, I was very interested in old Hollywood films. I used to watch them on Million Dollar Movie when I was growing up in, in Detroit. Uh, and so I'm, I'm just walking in the Tower of London like any other uh, tourist with some of my friends. Uh, and I couldn't believe it. There was James Mason. He was just I mean, how did you recognize him? Or it's just because you watched so many movies. You recognized yeah, him instantly? Because I watched so many movies, and I thought, this can't be anybody except James Mason. Now, here's the funny part. Amazing. I go up to him, and I introduce myself, and I say, now remember, I'm 15 years old. I say right, to him, right. I'm an actor, too. <laughs> I know, but I loved that line. I loved it. I loved it. I, you know, and the when I when I read that, I I just chuckled so much because it's like at fifteen you had that confidence to say I'm an yes. actor to this Academy Award winning actor, yes, you know, exactly. who's been starring in so many things. Hey, I do it too. Yes, that's <laughs> that was right. so, but he actually wanted to see you. He actually wanted to come and watch you. He did, and we were at the end of our time in England. It was a three-week uh, uh, tour there, and th- there were no more performances. And, and it was it was really, I was sort of crestfallen. And there was nothing for him to see, uh, and he seemed genuinely interested. He wanted to see. I'm sure he thought this is very strange. This 15-year-old American with at that time certainly a Midwestern accent must have wondered what what does that look like. 
<laughs> no, you know what? I bet you he was absolutely genuinely interested. Having worked with him for every day for about four months, I, I have the highest respect for him. And what I found is he's really interested in people and their craft. And when you're passionate about something, he was passionate about finding out more about you. So it's just too bad he didn't get to see you. But let's get on to Sylvia Plath because that's sure. why you came on. You have just penned. This new biography, The Last Days of Sylvia Plath. Now, yeah. Sylvia Plath, probably everybody knows who she was, uh, or yes, was, because she was born in 1932. She died at such a young age in 1963. She was an American poet. Um, probably her best-known poems are Daddy and uh, Lady Lazarus and maybe the novel Bell Jar. But right. she won a Pulitzer Prize um, a post after she was dead for her collected yes. poems. So yes, let's right. I, let's dive in. First of all, she was only eight when she wrote her first, uh, not wrote it, when she was published. And yes, that's that, right, in a newspaper. Yes. I mean, that's kind of an amazing accomplishment. But in, what I want to go to in your biography, and I want you to jump in and talk about whatever you want to talk about. Sure. But uh, you mentioned that how she fell in love with the character Superman. And so that kind of informed her ideal of what was going to she was going to look like in a look for in a man because her dad died uh, when she was just eight. And so yeah. she really didn't have that man in her life. So when she met her future husband, Ted Hughes, she thought he was going to be fantastic. So. Take us a little bit about sure. that crazy relationship. Yeah, I think I think I'm I'm glad you you mentioned the Superman. She listened to Superman on radio. This was the 1940s. This is before 40s, the right. television show with with uh, uh, Steve Reeves. But um, that notion uh, and her father, though he died when she was eight years old, he was already a powerful influence on her life. She would write little things for him and wanted to please him and and he was a he was very much of an authority figure uh, and she was very attracted to powerful men like that. Many of the women I've written about, uh, like Rebecca West and Martha Gellhorn, for example, a journalist, uh, right. were very attracted to powerful men uh, and the center of power uh, and I think it wasn't just Sylvia Plath's attraction to Ted Hughes. When she met him, he had a whole group of both men and women who were, in a way, acolytes, who were right. followers. They were in love with him. Yeah, right? really, I... uh, very much so. In fact, many of them were jealous of her because, it, in their view, she was taking, this American was taking them, uh, take, taking him away from them. So I think what she saw in Ted Hughes, and she was very ambitious for herself. Uh, she didn't want to subordinate herself to a man, but she wanted someone who, in a sense, was her equal, uh, someone who, who had the same kind of driving ambition. And in fact, I would say she was more ambitious than Ted Hughes. And of the, I would agree with you because it's interesting... Yeah, she, I mean, he, Ted Hughes made that comment several times that he never wanted to be a professional. I mean, and he said it in a derogatory yeah. way to her, like, you made me a professional. He really yeah. liked being that amateur that could have all the acolytes around him. Yes, that's right. She, she really, the curious thing about her is on the one hand, she's a great poet. On the other hand, you know, people don't think of her this way, but she was a great businesswoman. I mean, she took care of all of the, you know, submissions of his poetry to publishers. She typed up drafts of his work. She knew all the important editors in New York. She, she knew the people to cultivate. This became true not only in the United States, but also in England. She knew how to make these connections. She knew how to make herself, you know, important to other people. And she was. You know, you talked about James Mason being interested in other people. Sometimes people think of Sylvia Plath as very self-absorbed. And of of course, she could be, but I mean, what part of what made her a great poet was her. If you look at her journals, she was intensely interested in other people. You know, writing up what they look like and the way they talked, and and uh, how she reacted to them, and they reacted to her. She was just full of that kind of life. 
If you're just joining us, we're speaking with author Carl Rollison, a biographer. He wrote The Last Days of Sylvia Plath, which is one of his uh, brand new books, and it's fascinating. I really think the way that you portrayed her, uh, I mean, and obviously you were doing from letters and notes and all these things, is I found her in incredibly um, engaged with other people. It seemed that, just as you said previously, that other people were... Um, jealous of her, and in so yeah. being, they were mean, mean to her, and yeah. um, that it it really made me sad. Now, was she bipolar or schizophrenic? I mean, she had obviously some kind of mental issue going yeah. on. Uh, because she committed suicide. She tried several times, you know, before. Yeah. But I, well, has it ever I been would... really determined? No. The exact diagnosis was never determined, but I would use the term for her uh, that she used for herself, which was manic depressive. Mm-hmm. And if you look at certain of her poems, there's one I talk about in my book. It's a poem called Cut. It's about her cutting her thumb. But in cutting her thumb, it leads to a whole train of associations it, not just about domestic life, but about war and battle and, you know, everything involving blood and so on. And it's written in a kind of manic, energetic mood uh, that tells you a great deal about her own psychology. Um, it, it's, a, it's a very complicated subject. But well, and her, she's her, a complicated, she's a very yeah. complicated subject. Now, her therapist yeah, at so. Barnhouse... Talk to us yeah. about that relationship. It appears that she might have been the one of the very few people who really understood Sylvia Plath. Yeah. And of course, too, she was very sad that in her that the last time that Sylvia reached out, that she didn't get back to her, you know, expediently. Yes, there were there were a lot of uh, similarities between her therapist Ruth Barnhouse and Sylvia Plath. They both were young, ambitious women. Uh, they both uh, had sometimes difficult relationships with their with their parents, particularly with their mothers, uh, and they talked about that a lot. When when Sylvia Plath uh, went through her first period of depression, uh, she was put into McLean Hospital in Massachusetts. And uh, they weren't doing much for her. That is, I mean, none of the therapy seemed to work until Ruth Barnhouse uh, was called upon to take over the case. And I, I feel, from looking at Ruth Barnhouse's papers and her archive and Sylvia Plath's letters, that they just clicked on a very human level. You know, sometimes it just takes the right person to listen to you. Uh, right. whatever their credentials are, no matter how much education or lack of education they have, if they can, again, and this comes back in a sense to acting, if you can put yourself in someone else's place, and I think that's what Ruth Barnhouse was able to do. And, of course, the tragic thing about Sylvia Plath's life is that uh, toward the end of her life, she's in England, and she's writing to Ruth Barnhouse, but there's no physical presence there. I mean, I think it would be a huge difference if they, if they, 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 if they had been able to, you know, meet again, form this, this personal relationship again, instead of just doing it by letter. It also seems like the London winters and the terrible general weather really distressed and tormented Sylvia to the point of it was just she just I, I really this couldn't this bear is, it, even though she was right. living in, you know, the house that she was so excited about because yeah, it was the famous yeah. poet. That's right. It was the worst one of the worst winters on record in England in nineteen sixty-three. Uh it became you know Part of the contribution that biography, any good biography, I think, makes to an understanding of human life is really to look at the circumstances, the contingency. When I mean contingency, I mean sort of the accidents, the circumstances you find yourself in. They make a tremendous difference. You know, there are people who will say, well... Sylvia Plath was whatever you want to call it, bipolar, manic depressive, that uh, she would have killed herself anyway. I don't really believe that. I believe that the circumstances, the environment in which one finds oneself is really terribly important. Of course, the personality is important, but I think this, it's this interaction between the individual and the environment that's terribly important. And that's what my book is trying to get at for anyone who's 
you know, thinking about themselves and, oh, you know, what their personality is. Don't leave out of the equation society and the culture in which you live because that's shaping you in certain ways. And, and so well, it's, I, for the end of her life, you know, had to deal with all that. I agree with you so much there because, first of all, Ted's sister, um, Olwen, she just seemed like a, such a witch with a B. I mean, <laughs> she was so protective of her brother. I mean, she even insinuated that they had incestuous relationships. Yeah. And then, you know, of course, Ted was a quote-unquote lady killer. He at once uh, uh, he had said he'd wanted a coven of women, and he was he was just unfaithful all the time. And yeah. then, you know, she just it just seemed that as uh, Sylvia was so talented and so good at so many things, I think that whole that head of jealousy was raising its ugliness again. But I think that's right. I, wanna, I really was... want to get to how you operated as a biographer because sure. you had to um, you had to talk to so many people, go to so many places, read so many things. How did that shape your experience? Well, I think it really makes a difference. Bi biographers and historians always talk about this, is you can read about somebody, you can read other books about someone, and there's certainly been plenty of books written about Sylvia Platt, but there's nothing like reading your subject's letters and really, and talking to people that actually knew the person that you're writing about, it makes them real in a very different way. And, of course, visiting the places where your subject lived. I spent a fair amount of time in England, a uh, fair amount of time in Massachusetts, places where Sylvia Plath lived, to actually walk those streets, go into those buildings, uh, talking to her college classmates at Smith College. All of that is is filtered into uh, uh, your sort of imagining of what it was like for this uh, human being to uh, to lead such a life, I think. Right. Uh, and Platt is interesting because, again, she cuts, she's transatlantic, she cuts across these different cultures and societies, and she's trying to you know, become a success in both worlds. And that's, that's, a, that's a very tough thing to do, especially in the 1950s. Uh, she's dying just at the beginning of, of the early 1960s, uh, before the sort of the second wave of the women's movement and so on. And so there are a lot of things that she can't do that a man just takes for granted, you know. And but she's so like relevant today. I mean, what it she wrote. And so is, on. Yeah, and what she wrote is relevant today. Now I'm going to oh, yeah. skip because we only have a few more minutes, but I sure. don't want to leave out your other book, The Life of William sure. Faulkner. And I just would like you to explain to us, why do you think William Faulkner is considered one of America's greatest writers? I think one of the reasons is that people often think of William Faulkner as a Southern writer, as a man who, who writes about, uh, uh, well, really family relationships and the history of the South and the Civil War, and all of those things are true about him. But the remarkable thing about William Faulkner is that he was thinking about us. He was writing novels and stories that are very much about us. He writes about characters uh, who, who still live on the page and who, um, in a sense, forecast the kind of America we are now. I mean, one of the things I write about is uh, his great novel, Absalom, Absalom, and he has a character in there, Charles Bond, who's of a mixed race, uh, and no one knows how to treat this man who has a kind of aesthetic sensibility, a sense of beauty, and a sense of life that a man of his mixed-race heritage is not supposed to have in 19th century Mississippi. Well, the more I read about this character, the more it's almost a prediction of someone like Barack Obama and the mm. difficulties that people have had with reckoning with this kind of mixed-race person who becomes president. Their, Faulkner's fiction is full of that kind of thing. There are all kinds of very interesting... He did have spent a lot of time in Hollywood. There are references in his fiction to people like Joan Crawford and Marilyn Monroe, which you would never think about, uh, that he's thinking about the changing nature of American culture and about how movies, for instance, are really shaping and changing the American identity. And he's not usually thought of in those terms. And it's one of the reasons why I wanted to write about him. 
and also uh, his interest in children is just remarkable, uh, both in his life and in his fiction. The way he feels about children preserving their imagination and their own sense of the future. Well, I'm so glad that you at least got to share that little bit about Faulkner. I can't believe our yeah. time is already up. Do you see how quickly yeah, it yeah. goes when you're having fun? So I want to send yeah. people to your website, carlrollison.com, C-A-R-L-R-O-L-L-Y-S-O-N.com. His two newest biographies are The Last Days of Sylvia Plath and The Life of William Faulkner. There's so much more we could have talked about, but yeah. hopefully you'll, there'll be uh, people will be able to find your works um, on your site or on any of the online sites that uh, you want to buy a book. So, Carl, yeah. would you just like to leave us with a, a final, a, a, some final words? Well, I think I, I think uh, one of the reasons I wrote these two books is to sort of remind people how important writers have been in shaping the, the sensibility of, of our country, of our people. You know, there's so much attention now to movies and, and to other forms of entertainment. And I'm, I'm hoping with these books that people see that really, even today, these movies and books, you wouldn't have them without writers like Sylvia Plath and William Faulkner. Well, that's such a, I love it because here at Be The Star You Are, we say to be a leader, you must be a reader. So go out and uh, buy these books, Last Days of Sylvia Plath, The Life of William Faulkner. Learn more about writers, Carl Rollison, carlrollison.com. Thank you, Carl, for being on Star Style, Be The Star You Are. Thank you, audience. Oh, Don't pleasure. go away. We'll be back in just a bit with Mixed Harvest. I'm Cynthia Bryan. We're coming to you live on the Voice America Network. The star you are, be the star you are, you are. Change your world, change your life. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Be the star you are, the star you are. The annual cost of illiteracy to American taxpayers is over $225 billion dollars. Help increase literacy, reduce violence, and improve positive media messages by making a tax-deductible contribution to Be The Star You Are charity. A top-rated nonprofit, Be The Star You Are promotes positive role models, produces positive radio broadcasts, and donates positive books to empower women, families, and youth. Be a power partner and join our galaxy of stars. Visit our website at bethestarur.org to make a tax-deductible donation using PayPal or send checks to P.O. Box 376, 376, Moraga, California, 94556. bethestarur.org. Dare to care. us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. It's power time on Star Style. Be the star you are with your passion, purpose, and possibility producer, Cynthia Bryan. Now, back to the power party. This business of show business. Well, it is show business, and we are back. Welcome back to Star Style, Be the Star You Are. This is our Wednesdays with Writers, and we have another fabulous author with us today, Rob Swigger. He's a generous, fluid writer. He's published 16 books, and he has almost as many others unpublished. That's a lot. He does satire, science fiction, interactive fiction, thrillers, archaeology, blah, 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 lots and lots and lots of stuff. But this one is fascinating. It's called Mixed Harvest, Stories from the Human Past. Welcome, Rob, to Star Style. Be the star you are. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Well, I am happy to have you uh, on the show because when uh, we first contacted each other, I told you that uh, I am from a family of farmers, and you wrote back and said, well, this mixed harvest is, might be a little shocking. <laughs> I, 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 I always love a good, I love a good challenge. So 
so the, it's, it was exciting to read this because when I was at UCLA, one of my very, very favorite classes was in anthropology. In fact, at one point I thought, oh, I want to be an anthropologist. And obviously you have really dug deeply into our past and our transition from being hunter-gatherers to what, how agriculture absolutely changed everything. So could you first start by telling, um, telling our audience what prompted you that you wanted to write Mixed Harvest? I um, visited a place in Turkey called Çatalhöyük in 1999. Thanks for that because I didn't know how to pronounce it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Çatalhöyük. <laughs> um, it, it means the, the, the road with a fork. Uh, or the mound with a fork, sorry. Um, the the place was shocking to me. I, I had just seen the uh, solar eclipse on the other end of Turkey and uh, stopped here. And the the it's a it's a a kind of pueblo houses built uh, ne- right next to each other. So the entrance is through the roof, and they're dark and cramped and uh, look very unpleasant, uh, very smoky because the fires were inside. Only one entrance, as I say, through the roof. And I was, I got fascinated by this because I'd been interested in classical archaeology and had written a book about the Maya. So this was uh, a, a real shocking place to me. I ended up doing a novel about the Neolithic centered there. And then there were a series of seminars at Chateau Hoyuk, uh in, I think, 2009 to 2011. And I got... Um, the, the topic was the role of religion in the origin of the city, but I said, we can't really talk about what's going on here without talking about what happened before, because this is a story that goes through the development of agriculture, because Chateau Hoyuk was a, was a farming community, eventually, and then what happened after, which is the city. So I started pursuing the history of religion and the biology of what happened when we started farming and and eating more grains and domesticating animals, and we're dealing with that right now, the uh, jump of uh, diseases from animals to people. Exactly. Contact. Uh, exactly, and that's I was going to get to that, because you divided your book into three three main sections, shelter, house, and home. And one of the things that you you really emphasized is that how disease jumps from animals to humans, and that is part of what happened through agriculture. So uh, yeah. these, go ahead and expand on it a little more because I was um, fascinated at the way that you put your book together because you start off each uh, chapter and you give a little bit of um, of history of what we know of history or archaeology. And then then you actually have a story. Now, the stories, right. are they based on, um, are, are they things that are based on some of the, the cave paintings? How did you decide to write these stories? And then I'd like you to get to the, the whole idea of the animals and uh, with humans. Okay. Yeah, It's a lot uh, to ask of you, well, I know. <laughs> The, the book, when I started writing it in 2009, it was probably a little over half nonfiction, just factual information that was kind of illustrated because I felt that stories had more emotional engagement and would affect people in a more uh, profound way because it appeals to the emotions as well as the intellect. And... um uh, as as it went on, the book got to be enormous. Uh, I started doing the stories just to illustrate the various phases of the human story on Earth, and I think that the the book is intended to tell a story over overall, even though the stories are very far apart in time, for the most part. And some of them overlap. Uh, yeah, some of them. There are some that are continuous, but mm-hmm. uh, for the most part, you know, there there's several thousand years between stories. Right, but I've been to almost all the places here except in Iraq. I have not gone to Iraq. I'm sorry, um, but I've been I've been to a lot of the caves in France and Spain, 
and uh, gotten to know some of the people who do the work there. And I was really uh, profoundly impacted by them because their uh, attention to detail and their close observation of animal behavior. Uh, and I wondered what, how it was that people could not only take in all that information, but then crawl through the darkness and paint these things, sometimes flying flat on their backs and painting on the ceiling. Um, in one case, roofing yak, it's, a, it's a, a kilometer and a half to where the paintings are. So they were crawling that far in the dark with maybe a little tallow lamp. And, and it could have been animals the in the cave, too, right? I mean, especially... Uh, Some of the caves the, certainly had cave bears. There's plenty of evidence of, of sharing the caves or waiting until the bears left mm -hmm. uh, to go in. Um, it, but you have, to, you have to try to imagine what it was like for a human being to want to do that. You know, why? What, what was the meaning that forced people to, or drove people to um, endure it? the darkness. And um, I, uh, it, it seems to be connected to shamanism. There have been lots of theories about why the paintings existed. It was art for art's sake, or it was teaching uh, children about animals, or uh, it was hunting magic. Um, I think that it's performative. I think they, they are uh, summoning the animals through the stone. Uh, but shamanism is is kind of the the way spirituality functions in this in this world, where they're actually the shaman is making the journey from one side to the other. Well, you know, uh, and, and speaking and, of that, it, in many of the stories, it's uh, especially at the one the, the cave that I can't pronounce. <laughs> um, I mean, they were like caves; these huts where they had to go in through the top. I mean, I just can't even imagine why they would have oh, to crawl through a hole in yeah, the, yeah. you know, why not make a door? And, it, and you had written that it looked like caves because they were just they, all next they, to they each were other. They were very much like caves, yeah. Yeah, that, you, that they and, were like and, a cave. But that they, when, um, when somebody died, they actually buried them under the floor. They would dig up the, right. the mud and dig them under the floor, and that was like part of the spirit so that it continued on the clan. That, to me, yeah, was really interesting. Yeah, their bones become part of the bones of the house. I, I think that the the, the, uh, the burial practices in Chateauhoyuk and, and, and all over the Middle East, in fact, they were burying them under the floor. They were also removing the skulls and replastering them and painting faces them, on them. And painting them as if they were real. I mean, yeah. they are real, but yeah. as if they were part of the household now. They, they become the, the lineage head or the spirit of the house that's looking over people. And I think that there's this profound connection that, with people had, that people had initially with the caves that they were living in, although, of course, they were not always living in caves because there are not that many. But um, when they did find a cave or a shelter, it, it, became, an ex it became a kind of vague extension of them. They, the walls of the cave extended their bodies out a little bit or their consciousness out. And when they started building houses, the house became an extension of the body. And I think today they are absolutely extensions of, I walk around my neighborhood during this pandemic and find uh, that, 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 that the houses are presenting a face to the street. That represents and that, the people I inside. think that's a great bridge to talk about your book and the pandemic, because um, under the chapter called Scribed, you wrote, faced with the challenges of collecting, storing, and distributing goods and services, someone decided to draw simple designs on clay to keep track of things from barley to sheep. And I found it um, interesting how this jump to farming happened. So talk about uh, how there were, I mean, then the plagues happened, then there was pollution, and then there was climate change and overpopulation. And so it, it's like from the time they started farming or actually settling in one place and not being nomads, that's when the problems seem to begin. Yeah, these are these are unintended consequences of this uh, adoption of agriculture, which, as uh, you know, to, to quote Gandhi about Western civilization, it would be a good idea. Um, farming turns out to be a mixed 
harvest mm-hmm. because it it produces a steady food supply usually not always if there's storms or uh, infestations of insects or whatever um, crops can fail but by and large it provided a steady source of nourishment it did change the diet considerably and we haven't quite adapted to it even now uh, but the consequence of the diseases jumping from domesticated animals initially sheep and goats and then cattle and horses and pigs and chickens and uh, llamas and all kinds of other animals. Uh, And I guess now we get stuff from bats. Bats. And pangolins. Pangolins. Oh, yes, that's right. The pangolins. Anticipated. Yeah. So so this is a consequence that, that could not have been foreseen. I'm not blaming people for adopting agriculture. It was far too tempting and I think inevitable that we would because conditions ripened for it. But looking back, it seems like maybe it was not such a good idea and that perhaps um, we can use what we learned from the consequences of it then to uh, make decisions about our future. I'm afraid time is getting pretty short and there's not a lot of sign that we're doing it, but there's some hopeful sign. So I'm going to maintain a certain amount of optimism. Well, I always maintain optimism, but what I found interesting after reading your book, and we're speaking with Rob Swigert, his book is called Mixed Harvest Stories from the Human Past, is uh, his how right now that we're in this pandemic, this COVID-19, some people believe it's happening, other people don't believe it's happening, but it is changing literally everything around the world. And uh, throughout history, there have been shamans and religious people and just uh, people on the outside saying that the end is coming or the end is here. So it is a, it's a scary thing when you, this book comes out and we're right in the middle of something that could be very, very... Um, a global cultural change. I guess that's how we have to put it. So what do, what can we learn from the past? Since we do have a mixed harvest now, we are not hunter-gatherers yeah. anymore. You know, people are living in cities. They're not climbing through holes in um, a mud cave. What should we take away from mixed harvest? What would you want people to, to think about? Yeah, I have to say that I didn't plan uh, on the pandemic, but I guess. It oh, well, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> it, 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 it wasn't my idea, but they've happened before. Um, and uh, they'll they'll happen again and probably more often. Uh, I, I was writing about this stuff when I was a, a futurist in the 90s. Um, and uh, it was already clear that that was uh, going to be happening. I think that from farming, we've, we're learning a number of things, one of which is we have to be sustainable about it, we can't, and we can't keep doing uh, monoculture. We can't have miles and miles of just corn growing, as we do in right. Iowa. Uh, we, have to, we have to localize things. Uh, I was in an expert panel um, of futurists uh, for a food company at one point, and I raised the issue, and this was many years ago of climate change, and a guy from the uh, CDC came up to me during the break and said, one of our major problems is we have five billion too many people. And uh, I do think that we have too many people. We are putting a burden on the planet that it can't sustain. And well, and who knows, gradually... this, might be the, this might be the reckoning. Unfortunately, Rob, we are out of time, so I want to give out your website. Oh, I know it goes so fast. Uh, the book is called Mixed Harvest, Stories from the Human Past. Rob Swigert, his website is robswigert.com, R-O-B-S-W-I-G-A-R-T.com. Well, I think that our, um, our days um, have to be planned out so that we don't repeat the repeat history and we really do have to think about climate change thank you so much rob for writing mixed harvest and uh let's be safe right let's be safe absolutely thank let's you very be much safe. rob swigert 
R-O-B-S-W-I-G-A-R-T, robswigert.com. Go out and get a copy of this book. That's our show for today. Thank you for being great listeners and allowing me into your life every Wednesday, 4 to 5 p.m. Pacific, right here coming to you live on the Voice American Network. We want to bring you renowned authors from around the globe because you can change your life. You can make your dreams come true. And we can do something about climate change. So plant your own garden and grow your own food that I think it's a good idea. And I'm taking that from you, Rob. For more information yep. about Be The Star You Are charity or to make a donation, visit bethestarur.org. More information about Star Style, go to cynthiabryan.com. My aim is always to encourage, inform, amuse, motivate, and inspire you. I want you to cherish the past, dream of the future, but celebrate today because that's all we have. And read a book this week, and I've just given you two great choices for this week, Mixed Harvest and the Last Days of Sylvia Plath. And until we celebrate next week, remember this, love always wins, kindness always prevails, and smiles will keep us happy. My name is Cynthia Bryan for Star Style. I thank you and encourage you. Be the star you are. Be your unapologetically authentic self. Be safe and be strong. Be the star you are. The star you are. Be the star you are. You are. It's been a pleasure bringing you our life-changing program, Star Style, Be the Star You Are. We have you on our radar as it's our goal to inspire, inform, entertain, and motivate you to be the star you were born to be. For more information, visit StarStyleRadio.com. And to make a donation to the charity, go to BeTheStarYouAre.org. Ignite the flame that burns brightly within. Take charge of your life and coach yourself to success with our dynamic host and empowerment architect, Cynthia Bryan. Every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another serving of champagne for the spirit and a power boost to live with star style. Until we celebrate together next week, be the star you are.